So I really love horror and scary movies and comics and things like that, but I don't consume as much of it as I'd like to because I just don't have the nerves for it. If I'm going to see a horror movie, it has to be in the comfort of my own home where I can stop and just put it on pause, take a break, and like some ice cream or something to break the tension. Um, but like zombie stuff is my favorite, and that grew out of an intense childhood fear of zombies. Uh, I think it all started with the movie Hocus Pocus, that one where Bette Midler and Sarah Jessica Parker are playing witches looking for a virgin to sacrifice on Halloween or something, and there's a zombie that the kids in the movie meet, and they're running from these witches, and it was just the most terrifying thing to me. Even though he's a friendly zombie, he, he, he helps them, but I, I could not handle it. So. I'm crying, afraid of this zombie, and my brothers, of course, uh, who are watching the movie with me, are making fun of me mercilessly, and uh, I think for years that went on. Um, also, the house I grew up in uh, is on a cul-de-sac that backed up against a graveyard, and I remember every night, once it started to get dark, I'd have a rule that uh, if I didn't look out the window that faced the direction of the graveyard, you know, then I'd be safe, because if, because if I looked out the window, that would raise the dead, and bring the zombies out. Hello, it's me, Dale, your host, broadcasting directly into your ear holes through the deep of the night. And if I'm up pouring small match whiskey into my single origin coffee and talking into a vintage microphone held together with duct tape, then this must be Dale Radio, a show about characters and their creators. And we're coming to you, as always, from the foul banks of the Guanas. This time of year, everyone's asking, trick or treat, trick... Or treat, and I will tell you that today's episode is the latter. I was recently out in Los Angeles, California, and there I met up with a dear friend, Shona McGarry, for a delightful and very open conversation about her experiences in the writing rooms of some of the great shows on television. That's what she does. She writes for for TV. And Shona is also a storyteller and a performer. She's a co-host of the popular radio picture show out there. Shona's one of the good ones, folks. And I was thrilled to be able to sit for a spell with her, even if it was in a room that was almost certainly haunted by the spirits of dead Academy Award nominees. I was out there for a conference, you understand, and the organizers, they chose this place, the Biltmore, in DTLA. That's what they're calling downtown L.A. now. When I lived there, it was called Skid Row, or why in the world would you live there? (laughs) Well, sometimes a fella wants to live in a loft and have a view of another building and pay exorbitant amounts for parking. Anyway, nothing I did while I lived there, lo, these many years ago, was really coming from an informed or practical, you know, place in my being. I once dated a woman who looked exactly like me. I bought pleated trousers at Ross Dress for Less. I once went to a party sponsored by an energy drink company. I'm saying I have regrets. Yes, the years immediately following my divorce were something, I'm telling you, haunted in their own way. They were not by the past, but by the ghosts of what might have been. But this hotel, this is a real deal. Like the Black Dahlia chose this place to haunt. That's how serious it is. I didn't sleep the entire time I was there. I'd be nodding off during my breakout sessions, normally my favorite part of any conference. Can you imagine? 
I'd be using the markers at the flip chart, and then suddenly there'd be this awful squeak as I drew a long sloping line down across the page before catching myself. Awful, awful. Now All Hallows' Eve is coming up, and I was just informed by a well-meaning relative the kind that goes digging around the genealogy charts. The kind that signs up for Ancestry.com and insists on sending you copies of scanned documents about the good old colonial days. Well, just this morning, he sent me a blurry scan of a story about Martha Allen Carrier. Uh, apparently, uh, I'm a descendant of this person. Uh, she was an early settler of Andover, Massachusetts, who was found guilty of witchcraft and hung in the town square along with good old handsome John Proctor from the Scarlet Letter in the Crucible. Well, in Salem trial lore for years after, and by none other than Chief Witch Hunter Reverend Cotton Mather, she was referred to as that rampant hag who would be Queen of Hell. So, pretty great to be descended from the Queen of Hell, I'd say. Secondly, Reverend Mather. Oh, I'm glad he's not around today. I'm pretty sure he'd be a friend on Facebook who feels compelled to comment on everything you post, so you have to move him to acquaintances, but even then he somehow finds a way to tag you in embarrassing photos from freshman year at art school when you were experimenting with a mustache, when you wore windbreakers everywhere because you got one in Maine on a family vacation and thought it was cool, but really it was two sizes too big, so you resembled a summer employee at a seafood restaurant that had really great views of the water, but the food was only ever so-so. No, Cotton Mather would not be the kind of fellow you'd want as a Facebook friend, because he's, like, just there to stir up trouble and bring up bad memories. You could just be posting an innocuous photo of yourself trying to fly a broom while in your cat form with the caption, Tuesdays, am I right? And he'd have to post some nonsense about Obamacare. And you're just like, ugh, Cotton. Your name is a fiber. The touch, the feel of evil. You hung my relative in the town square. <laughs> Not cool, Cotton. Not cool. Well, I'll rest a little easier, though, knowing that I am a descendant of the Queen of Hell. I mean, if other ghosts start bothering me, you know, really going for it, well, I'm just going to call my great-great-great-great-whatever-she-was-Martha on the spirit phone and be like, can you take care of this for me? <laughs> oh, today's audio character snapshot. The person's voice that you heard on the top of this program, not a ghost. In fact, it's a very funny comedian of Philadelphia origins, now making it big in New York City, none other than Allison Zeidman. Allison has a show Friday, October 30th. Ooh, that's Mischief Night. That's what we usually get into some pretty wild stuff. Mischief Night. I'll tell you, it involved a lot of shaving cream and toilet paper. Uh, as she's got a show there uh, Friday at the Creek in the Cave in Long Island City. The show is called The Banter Show, and she and her co-host, Scotland Green, invite funny people up uh, without any plan. To banner entertainingly. I bet that'd be hard. <laughs> I have no idea what that's like. Just to go, just fly out there. Oh, that'd be something to see. And then on November 7th, well, she's back at the creek with her monthly show, Dark Spots, with comedians performing only their toughest, most difficult material. So lots of stories about the checkout line at Dwayne Reed, probably. Check it out for more on Allison. Follow her on Twitter at Allison Seidman. Just like it sounds. <laughs> Over there on Twitter. That's how you, you'll find her. Now put down the Ouija boards and take a break from your seances and enjoy this conversation with the extremely talented and exceedingly insightful, all-around delight, Shauna McGarry.
Oh my, Shauna McGarry, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. This is a delight. <laughs> thank you for meeting me here in a haunted hotel in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, <laughs> right after work, we had a couple of peanuts, we had a little bit to drink. And now we'll just have a conversation. And now about we're things. in your room. <laughs> now we're. In, I know this has progressed <laughs> this <is> quickly. Very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate uh, you taking the chance on this because it does. Um, it does. Uh, I appreciate it that smell there good. Are two beds. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, Shauna, as I said, usually I've given a lot of thought to our conversation uh, well in advance, and it's not to say I haven't thought about <laughs> what we might talk about today as we gaze into a beautiful. Um, the painting of Venice yes. that is screwed to the wall here in the hotel. That really takes you there, doesn't it? Lots of men required to... There's a couple of gals over there, oh, okay. all wrapped up, uh, headed off to... Well, they're going to run into the other boat, it looks like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but Have you ever been over there? I have. I went with my mother three years ago to Venice. That's pretty nice, right? I, I did like it, yes. It's nice. It's a kind of magical place. Uh, where you, if you if you if you haven't even thought about it, there's no cars. No, it's amazing. And we arrived no at night, and we didn't really think about that late at night, <laughs> about midnight, and we had no idea how to get to our. You got to take the Vaporetto. But there really weren't any running at that point. Oh my gosh! How did you get there? <laughs> uh, yes. Eventually, we got on a like a community boat. Is that what is that what a Vaporetto is? Well, yeah, the, the water taxi. Yeah, the there. water taxi. Yeah. Um, a lot of walking around cobblestone streets with our wheelie suitcases. I tell you, the way to do it, though, is to get a private boat. Because you feel like Clooney and Alma there. You just zoom, zoom, zoom right over the waves, right in. Oh, my gosh, look at this beautiful place. And it's just, you feel very yeah. cosmopolitan. My mom doesn't trust any cabbie that they're bringing us anywhere correctly. So In any transportation. In it, like in cars. So yeah. to see her not trust a, a boat taxi person was pretty funny. <laughs> now, Shauna, we met a few years ago now, almost 10 years ago, mm-hmm. out here in Los Angeles during my time of discovery <laughs> and the lost years of my life. Right after my divorce, I was really trying to get a handle on things, doing a lot of catering gigs, and then I fell into this UCB, the Upright Citizens Brigade, which, of course, now everybody's buzzing about and this and that, but at that point it was still kind of New, still had a kind of a zest to it that was a little bit funky. I think we were one of the first classes. It's to, uh, like to one of the student classes that they had opened in L.A. Yes, yes. New York had been going for a little bit. Yes, and then here in Los Angeles, it was just getting going, and I got uh, into it, and then I gave. Thousands of dollars to learn how to say yes. <laughs> <laughs> and also the rules don't matter. But it was a wonderful experience, and we got to know it. And uh, what led you to do that? Oh, gosh, what did? I think I, in college, I had just graduated college and moved to L.A. and was in love with SNL like everybody else. And Tina Fey was just, um, I think, in the heyday or coming off of her tenure as head writer there. And... And I had seen my roommate in college had started doing UCB at NY, when I went to NYU. And so, yeah, when I came out here, I just knew I wanted to somehow enter uh, the world of comedy, and I didn't quite know how to do it. And also, But I you knew about UCB? Because of New York, yeah. Okay, all right. I was also so lonely in L.A., because <laughs> as most people are place. when they move here, 
Uh, they don't know how to socialize. It's not like living in a city like New York where you just walk out in the street and there are people. Yeah. So I think I joined to try to make friends. And that, I met you. That's true. It worked. Yes. It worked. And uh, boy, I, I, my loneliness disappeared. <laughs> but now let's, let's, let's trace a little bit. Where did you grow up? You grew up here out in Santa Barbara. Yeah, I was born in Los Angeles here. Actually, my family... Uh, I always get a little tripped up when I say this because I want to say one of the original families of L.A., but original white families of Los you know Angeles. what I passed today is a McGarry Street. That was my family. That's amazing. They owned a pig a, farm down a, here. A pig farm. Yeah, now it's all, fac- it's all I don't know, warehouses, yeah. like <laughs> windows smashed out. Is that but, what McGarry Street is? It's yeah, down here. Yeah. And, uh, yes. That's my family. Like, my great-great-grandfather owned a pig farm here. That is a wonderful <laughs> legacy. Yeah, and then... Uh, my father grew up. Oh, I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. My father grew up in Hancock Park, uh, one of seven Irish Catholic, and then he met my mom. Um, once he came back from college, he was didn't know what to do with his life. He was an actor, <laughs> and not making any money at it. And my mom was the principal of his elementary school, and she hired him because at a Catholic school, you don't need a teacher's a ah. teaching degree. And they fell in love. Well, that's a beautiful story. Mm-hmm. But I want to go back to the pig farm yes. for just a moment. <laughs> well, I don't so, know much uh, about one it. Of the, you don't know much about it. No. No, but you know that it, you have documentation of any of that? Uh, I think papers. We don't have pictures of that. Yeah. That was, it was almost too long ago. Almost too long mm-hmm. ago. And uh, were they just supplying pigs to, to whoever needed it? Yeah, I think it was a... I mean, it was back when the river was still wild. Yeah. So uh, there were a lot of farms along Not the river. Not in cement. No. Yeah, now the Los Angeles River is mostly paved over. Yeah. Uh, but then it was a... A wild estuary and amazing. Yeah, and then uh, the the acting business. You said that was your father. My father actually went to NYU to study acting too. And so, what was the what was uh, what would have been the era where he was going on auditions for things? The seventies. Okay, yeah. so what it was like Three's Company? What was he going out for? <laughs> yeah, Love America. I style? mean, I think he fancied himself a sort of hybrid, so he was a James Taylor type. The guitar slung around his. Oh yeah. My aunt has stories of him at Native American reservations singing political protest songs and things like that. Was he going up to the Source Restaurant and uh, partaking in all that? I don't know. He's got a story about streaking through Cantors. <laughs> that's pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. And that hippies? They were hippies. That's what you said. His older brothers and sisters. He was the middle kid, so he grew up like you know his sister. Um, and his brother, he remembers going to the University of San Francisco, and he was a huge anti-war protester. He was a little young to be a bona fide right, hippie. hippie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> of course, my parents were older than <laughs> really the hippies, so missed out on that. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we don't, we can't talk about hippie stories, <laughs> can we? But uh, but so he, but he stayed with it here. Did he? Was he successful in doing it? Getting any work? I think he eventually. Um, just realized he really liked teaching and also wanted to have a family and so as when I was younger I remember him coming home um it's funny to remember his different stages of headshots sort of but (laughs) he never really gave it his all the way I think he did in his early 20s is there a headshot hanging in a dry cleaner somewhere (laughs) it's highly possible definitely has a headshot with like the skinny tie like he's got the Miami Vice era headshot and like uh, it was also mostly music with him too. He was just sort of an all-around. 
Is he funny? No, my father has... Uh, no, my father is not very funny. <laughs> He's a pretty serious guy. <laughs> we had a contribution from Rose, your puppy, who we snuck into this place. <laughs> yes, in a bag. <laughs> in a bag. With air holes. And it's then, a nice bag. She spilled water all over the joint, so that's <laughs> fine. It's fine. I'm happy she's here. But in case uh, there is any noise, we, I just want to acknowledge uh, her presence. Yes, uh, the people here. downstairs think it's the ghost. <laughs> As well. Somewhere. It is haunted here. So, uh, which we'll talk about. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't, I have already acknowledged the spirits in this room and asked them for kindness and for, and for kind of a low visibility. I, I, I saw the incense and the sage burning. And it's... <laughs> Listen, I would be burning sage 24 hours if I could, <laughs> uh, because that's the kind of place uh, that I'm staying in. It's old. They used to have the Academy Awards here. It's beautiful. It's beautiful, but nothing has changed since the 30s. <laughs> <laughs> there is absolutely thing. I had to move rooms because the first room I was in smelled a little bit of mold and Ugh. ghosts, and so I had to get up here. And uh, now I'm close. They say nine to twelve or nine to eleven is where the ghosts start. So I'm hoping that here on the oh, they seventh advertise floor, it. This is what somebody told me. Oh. Anyway, it's a spooky. Have you had any encounters with ghosts in your own life? Yes. Yeah, so to continue the family narrative, um, when I was nine. Yeah. I, again, Irish Catholic raised. Uh, my uncle, who's a priest uh, for the Jesuits, yes, uh, they were selling a huge property in Santa Barbara where I grew up, and my family was asked to live on it as caretakers. So we lived in this tiny little cottage at the tip top of this 128 acre property. Coyotes. I mean, as a kid, it was just amazing. Magical. Yeah, rollerbladed. To our hearts content like crazy. <laughs> Lemon groves. But there was a huge property on it built in 1918, I think, or built in 1908. But uh, the woman who owned it, Laura Knight, was friends with Charles Lindbergh. He landed on her front yard. Oh. And before we moved in, the priest who had care took the property before us told my brothers and I so many stories about ghosts living in that huge, <laughs> like, ranch-style mansion. Yeah. So we would go as kids all the time and try to spook each other. And it had one of those old paintings where the you thought the woman's eyes was following you, you know, down the hall. And I don't care for that in real life. Yeah, it was an old, <laughs> it was an old creepy place for sure. But did you see anything though? You never saw a chair levitate or anything like that. No, I mean, I, I, I've always been a skeptic. I think really, you don't believe in the thing. This is what I need here because I'm a very sensitive and I've seen little things happen in my life. So if you're telling me that it doesn't exist, I'm going to get a good night's sleep. I don't know if they do. I mean, I think people love stories. Yeah. And I like that that I like that people like stories and so I will always perpetuate the idea of them, but I don't know if I I think you're okay. What do they want from you? No, exactly. We have no beef. I haven't had trouble <laughs> <laughs> with the ghost. I just, it, it's not, I don't, I'm not very restful, you understand. Yes. I don't no, sleep well. No, I saw well the knowing. melatonin. Yeah, yes, I got the melatonin. I'm taking the capsules. I'm playing music at night and waking up regularly. I was going to, do they work, those cap, the melatonin? No. no. <laughs> I went to the health food store and I said, I need melatonin. I don't know anything from this and that with melatonin. They said, well, how many milligrams? And what I said, well, what do you got? And they said, three, okay. Sure, three is not enough. I need like 100 to 150. Yeah. <sighs> it's 
very difficult. It's challenging for me when I'm on these trips talking to the young people. Are you on trips a lot? I am on trips a lot. I do a lot. You know, I work for Come Flyer With Me, which <laughs> is the nation's premier hander-outer of flyers for their musicals and comedies and things around the country. And so I'm often asked by uh, folks, how can I improve the marketing and that kind of a thing? Because I've been very successful uh, within the company, now recently promoted to uh, vice vice president. And, uh, boy, I'm out on the road all the time. Thank you for asking. But the fact, and so this is a conference, of course, of paper suppliers and ink providers. A lot of chatter about soy ink. I don't need to tell you. Uh, so it, it's great fun to be here, and I love the I love mingling. And, boy, you should have seen the bar scene last, last night. But that's not what we're here to talk about, Shauna. The whole uh, thrust of this show, this season, has been about characters. Okay. And that's why I was excited to have you come uh, over here to have a little booze and come up to the room. <laughs> but uh, it's because you are a comedy writer. And uh, given, uh, the, it sounds like you have some great characters in your family history, which is wonderful. But you've, uh, you've written for a number of uh, programs, television shows, beyond the, the improv scene. Uh, you kind of took, you stepped back, as I did after a while, because I was like, look, what are you teaching me at this point? <laughs> I know I'm funny. <laughs> she, uh, but you better believe I put UCB on my resume now. But the <laughs> point is, uh, uh, you you then, you were always writing at that point when you when we intersected? Did you go to NYU to write? I think most of the classes I took at NYU were writing classes. Yeah. Um, yeah, it sort of has always been a thing. I just knew I wanted to be in film and TV somehow. My mom, my grandfather and my grandmother were writers. My mom was obsessed growing up, like kind of as a hobby. It's funny to think now, but because I'm around her age that she was then, but when we first moved to Santa Barbara and she was kind of lonely up there, she started hobby writing TV shows. Like, oh, like uh, spec scripts. Spec scripts. <laughs> um, she wrote a 30-something. Oh, like fan fiction. <laughs> sort of. Yeah, I, well, I should ask her if that existed then. Uh, you know, in like the late '80s, but um, I think it did, though it wasn't maybe called that. Yeah, you know that people were taking these characters and writing their own things for them. Yeah, thirty <laughs> something. Do you ever watch that? You're too young for thirty. I have, uh, as an older like person, just out of curiosity. It's an amazing show. When that hit, it was really uh, something. Yeah, it was thirty something, but it was really it was, it was truly, <laughs> something of thirty. It was yeah. something of thirty, but it was great to watch. But so she and I was uh, younger a little bit, but I still I could relate to it, you know. Yeah, well, I think that's like people. I never really watched. I think a lot of people watch horror movies because their older siblings watch them, and they mm. just you're like too young. The idea that you're too young to be inundated with all these things. I was the eldest, so I didn't really have that experience. But I watched a lot of probably too emotionally mature movies from my age with my mom because yeah. she was so into them, and a lot of thrillers, a lot of like. You know, heartburn, um, anything starring Meryl Streep. Sure. We watched ad nauseum and stuff. So it kind of was in my head from an early age. And and she was reading so many how to write screenplay books just because that's what she wanted to oh, so do. That's what was lying around. So she would always be like, "All right, this is page ten. This is where the first. <laughs> and she's working on at that point a word processor or a typewriter. Yeah, I remember because I just saw Steve Jobs, and I was trying to think when did we get our first iMac or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember we had one of those. With the, it was the green one, but yeah, no, whatever was of the time they had. And what what happened to any of those scripts now? She's gotten really close. Like she always is like, I'm a failure. You know all that sort of 
bad negative speak, but I'm like, mom, you were a a suburban mom. She was a city college teacher. I mean, she has a full life up there, but she would just cold send these scripts to agents and movie producers. And she got so far last year, she optioned a script. She's never had like a meeting down here. It's just all from her tenacity of mailing them in. And she's like, nothing ever happens. And I'm like, are you kidding? Like, do you know how many people are down here hustling every day? That's amazing. Mm -hmm. But that also is what it is, isn't it? Tenacity. Yeah. Staying with it. Yeah. But if you are here, then it's a little bit easier. Do you think or no? Oh, for sure. I mean, so much of it is just the schmooziness of it. So you were inspired by that. You knew that it existed. Were you paying attention to the writing of shows that you were watching or no? Yeah, again, like I was a weird kid. So I would run home every day and watch Northern Exposure. You know, like when I was a kid. They had them on repeat. I don't remember what channel. Janine Turner. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, I was in love with anything starring Catherine Hepburn, like AMC, TCM. So it was more of that. Me. So your after school was really immersed in these programs. Yeah, I think I did cross country for one year and was like, no, it's so school much sports running. is not for me. It's I'll so just come running. home and watch movies. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot of running. It's a lot of running. The joke in my family is that like I thought it was an equestrian sport. <laughs> I was all excited to ride horses and then showed up the first Where's day. Where's the horse? Yeah. <laughs> oh wait a second. <laughs> Actually, the guy that was the cross-country captain at my high school when I was a freshman was, um, uh, oh gosh, Ben Rattray, and he started Change.org. And at oh. the time, he was our student body president. He was cross-country captain. He was like, he would run Quite around with his, I know, blonde hair. And it was always a like. crush on this fellow. Well, it was, he, I mean, everyone <laughs> did. He was sort of like this, the person that nobody could yeah, touch. And yeah. then he did. He went off and did amazing things. Isn't that the way? That's what you want to hear. Yeah. The popular, good-looking fellow went on to change the world. Well, yeah, he was always a good guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm He not... did cross-country, not like those, like, beat-em-up <laughs> sports or anything. <laughs> not like the, uh, the the toughs. No, he wasn't a tough. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, other than that, a good childhood, it sounds like. So full of uh, creative uh, people around. Yeah, I always say, like, Santa Barbara, everyone's like, oh, you're so lucky. And I think growing up there, it's easy to feel like an outsider because it's a city of extremes. Um, you're either wealth. wealth, you're either wealthy or you're not, or you're blonde or you're not, you know. Um, so uh, there's a lot of knots, um, which I, I like to think I was a lot of the knots. So it's kind of like a badge of honor for me, but looking back, we were pretty fortunate, definitely. Um, but yeah, a lot of public art programs that I my mom made sure we took full advantage of, and I was very much a theater nerd. And yeah, you did the shows and things there. Yep. Yeah. Continually and constantly cast as any mother, aunt, or grandma. <laughs> <laughs> That's what happens, isn't it? Sometimes yeah. character actors. But you need to do it. You need <laughs> somebody's got somebody. Yeah. I like those parts. Yeah, you look back and you're like, that was the good Pretty one. Pretty good, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, I could own that, yeah. even though I was, whatever, 15 or something. I played the heck out of that. Oh, man, somebody uploaded this year on Facebook with the whole thing. I was like, why did you do this? Um, our performance of Our Town. Oh, yes. And I God. was Mrs. Gibbs. Oh, man, it's painful. That's a rough one. That's a rough one just anybody. Yeah. <laughs> you put Meryl Streep in that, it would be tough to watch that thing. Yeah, but, but it you know, is the perfect Grover's high school. Corners. Yeah. What is it? Qu- yeah, Grover's Corners. Grover's Corners. The, the yeah. baseball kid. Yeah. 
Oh. Yeah, Emily and... Oh, God, those folks. Yeah, it's they hard. Just, don't go back. Don't go back. Up the hill to her grave. I'm fortunate that I uh, performed in an era before... All, you know, there's a couple of VHS floating or tapes oh, floating. Oh, I thought you meant before around. our time was written. Before was our like, time was written, How yes. old are you, Dale? <laughs> That's right. Well, I'll tell you how those pyramids were built. <laughs> it's just sand. Well, speaking of ghosts, those might be aliens, but... Absolutely, right? Let me ask you this. What about octopus? Oh, I, I haven't heard that. You think it's an alien. I think it's an alien. Hmm. They have square pupils. What? Look I... at them. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I don't know if I will. No, look at them. They, their DNA is unlike anything else here. That's so what's going on? Yes. Yeah. That just blew my mind. Yeah. Podcast Put mind that mind. into your next script. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that fun when somebody tells you to do that? So you were, you were, you pursued the improv thing to, to, to do what? To, to, uh, yeah, I mean, it was, it was. Embrace your love of comedy. Yes, exactly. And then I, um. Were you writing comedy at that point? Not really. I didn't think of myself as a funny person. Um, And while you were performing? I was, no, I was writing. But it was all sort of, you know, introspective, drama, girl, coming of age stuff. I mean. I like that stuff. I mean, that's still what I write. (laughs) But hopefully with a little bit more maturity. Um, But they were plays? They were. uh, No, they uh, were screenplays. Screenplays. Yeah. Yeah. were you making shorts, movies? Yes. I mean, everything that you do in film school, I kind of did. Okay. Like the student shorts. You did a stop motion animation with uh, in a cardboard box exactly. of a person eating breakfast. Yeah. Sad and alone. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I did. One of my short films is basically that. Just it's, a girl. It's every, yeah. It's everybody. <laughs> every every uh, short film program I saw uh, at a film school. <laughs> You'd have one of those mm-hmm. set to some kind of dreary Polish soundtrack mm-hmm. and just coming in and then lightning. Yeah, my stuff was always a little like quirky, weird. Like, you know, Amelie was a big influence, I'm sure. Oh, man, that movie, I, I can't get through. Really? Why? It's I too fall much. Asleep. <laughs> Does she say anything in that whole movie? Oh, very little. Yeah. Oh, I need I need some more. She needed, That could have been written a little bit more. <laughs> you know what I mean? Give her some words. Yeah, it's true. I fall asleep during that. A lot of narration. But, uh, okay, and so then how did you get, because I had it in my mind that you worked on some program, which I don't think you actually did, and I've talked to you, I said, oh, yeah, you worked on this, and you said, no, no, I never worked on it. Oh. With Gilmore Girls, you said, I I had you locked in working on that show, but you never did anything, you had nothing to do with it. I wish, and it's coming back now. It's coming back, you were a fan of it. Late, after. Yes. I was very... Me too. In like a similar relationship with my mom, I think, growing up. So I sort of stayed clear when I was in high school. But I love it now. Lorelai and Rory. Yes. Yeah. No, I worked on, I don't know how the heck. I Well, my first TV job was this show called South of Nowhere, which has quite a cult following. South of Nowhere. It came on after Degrassi, which was very popular. Yes, the, the new Degrassi. The, the Canadian high school show. Uh, show. That tackles like. Big high school social issues. Which is like saved by the bell, but with a substance. Yes, but too much substance. Like every episode (laughs) is something very big and deep. And Drake was a part of that? Drake, yes, was in a wheelchair. He got shot. Like one episode is Drake gets shot. No, he's not Drake, but you know, it's like that kind of stuff. Um, Drake is okay as far as we know. The real Drake is okay. yeah, fun. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I've never said that about anybody. Um, 
No, but so South of Nowhere, in a similar vein, tried to answer that show by being one of the first shows uh, centered around teen lesbians. Um, what, what, what network did this It was air on, on the N. It was when, you know. On when, the N? Yeah, it's, I don't know what it is now. Noggin, Teen Nick, the oh, kind of a Viacom. Property. Child mm. channel, children's channel, the older South channel. of Nowhere. South of Nowhere. And who was in, who was in it? Uh, Gabby Christian and Mandy Musgrave played the two main girls. So, okay, you're uh, they were high basically school kids. a kid in Los Angeles. You take a couple of improv classes. You're here right out of school. Mm-hmm. How do you land a gig on a, a show? Well, so while I was taking the improv class, I was also working for still my hero, Miranda July, as her assistant. Oh, right. Uh, I had invited her to do a, a screening. I was in charge, one of the people in charge of this film festival at NYU, like a, fem- a female filmmaker film festival um, <laughs> called Fusion, which I think is still growing strong there, which is really amazing. But she came and showed me and you and everyone we know there. Right, great film. Yes. Yeah. And I asked her to do that, like, just as a fan. Because when I was in film school, it was film schools were still majorly transitioning to the idea that we should, the affirmative action of having 50-50 women and men in the program. And the, all the classes, the curriculum was very uh, biased towards male filmmakers. And so... We started this film festival, and her work was so important to me. And she did a project called Joni for Jackie. Yeah. Um, while she was in Portland. Or yes. Something, right? Well, she, and it was if you were a female filmmaker, you sent her a film, your film, and she put it on a VHS tape with nine other works by other female filmmakers, and she would send that VHS tape back to you. It was like a video chain letter. So I knew about that, and she, she's just so cool and. So then, yeah, so I came out here and I started working for her very part-time. And uh, so to actually make money, I started babysitting Mm -hmm. and I was a nanny, like a lot of people are. And a lot of my friends who are so talented and make things every weekend and write all the time are still nannying. I mean, it's a lucrative thing to do out here because... You need it. Yeah, you need, yes. So I was doing that and Paul Hohen, who's an amazing children's TV director, has won every children's TV Emmy, I'm sure, um, was my boss, was the dad, and he got me my first interview for South of Nowhere. And he was uh, the, he was one of the people you were nannying for? Yes. I got gotcha. you. But that was after nannying him, for him for like a year or something like for, that. For his children? Yes. <laughs> for Paul. <laughs> I made and, a mac and cheese. And are you still close with Miranda? Uh, I see her once in a while, Um just because our TV is sort of different than her world, and I'm always working, I don't see her as much as I'd like. But, yeah. but you had a good run with her. Yeah, so even after I kind of stopped working for her as her assistant, I helped her. I put together a retrospective of Joni for Jackie um, with her that was at Yerba Buena Center for the Arts, and she did. She starts all of her movies as performance pieces, so she did one... Um, that eventually would become the future that I helped her do. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah. But this whole time, I was sort of moving away from her because TV is your whole life once you start doing it. And that's where the jobs are. Yeah. And I also really did love TV. Like I said, um, right. I grew up watching shows. So, But after South of Nowhere... 
which was, I was the writer's assistant and the EP's assistant and the script coordinator, which if you know the jobs in TV is actually usually three people's jobs. <laughs> um, I just didn't know any better, and I was just so excited to be on a show. So, so they made out pretty well. How yeah, well, that started the pattern of me this. just like, oh, I'm not supposed to be here all the time. So, <laughs> like, uh, But that show ended around the writer's strike, and then I was lucky enough a writer on that show got me an interview on 24. And then I was there for its two last seasons. I mean, it came back last year, but um, and that was such a great fortune. And I, I got to write one of those episodes. You wrote a full deal, as I recall. I co-wrote with um, my other... I was a script coordinator on that show, but they... So, yes. After. And you write that show all in one day. <laughs> yeah, hour by hour, one it's, episode an hour. Yeah, that's how series. we do it. Yeah. yeah, that's how it's able to have that realness <laughs> that everyone talk like attributes to it. That real authentic voice that Twenty Four has. Yes, it did. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we, we, you're okay with the politics of that show? No. Um, as a <laughs> and you're okay saying that. <laughs> I don't think any, I mean <laughs> I don't know if any of the guys I worked with on that show listen to podcasts. Well, Hopefully okay. they do, but I mean it's this this goes out to tens of people. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've been I've had the distinct privilege and it really is to work with a lot of men who That is a privilege. Isn't yes, it? so it's such a, it is, but a lot of writers who really created what our current TV landscape is. Yeah. Um, but it is swiftly changing, and the advent of the Internet and podcasts and all this stuff, I think, like anything else, has, is a different generation of people and uh, People creativity. more sensitive and just more voices. Yeah. Um, but, no, so 24, I think it was a product of its time. It aired the same year that 9-11 happened, right. and so it was sort of a direct response to that. And it was a kind of American fantasy that we could solve the world's problems through one rugged individual, yeah, one maverick who could not be killed truly. Yes, and uh, uh, you, you, he never made a wrong decision and never slept. As far as I can tell, never used the bathroom. Never, never ate. had a stomach ache. Yeah, never ate. Never, never enjoyed a pour over coffee. Never doubted his own um, decisions. Like That's he right. was always right. Yes. Um, no, I mean I don't think I'll get in trouble for this. I think the thing that finally broke me. So basically my job as script coordinator was I just read the scripts over and over and over again and corrected them and researched them. We, we, we had, like, a person at the White House who would answer security questions, and it's fun. You know, yeah. that stuff's all fun. Like, I, I kind of knew about drones before anyone else was talking about them because we were, like, not not the Army or, like, <laughs> like but, like, I remember reading about them and being like, what the hell? Like, this is terrible. This, sound, this sounds scary. This is horrible. Is this what's going to happen? Um, and then it did. And then it did <laughs> in a major way. Um but there was one episode where his love interest, Jack Bauer's love interest for the season, comes back after going to a mental hospital over the two seasons. Because what happened with Jack Bauer in the previous season had like pushed her to her limit. Absolutely. It so, would any any partner. Yeah. So she came back a fragile mess with smudgy eye shadow. And, oh, like, that's you the know, sign. Yeah. A lady who couldn't quite handle it the way Jack Bauer can handle everything. So... <laughs> She makes Jack Bauer allow her to infiltrate a Russian mob boss. Keep keep with me. Yeah. He essentially rapes her in this episode. Yeah. It forces something 
uh, right as Jack Bauer like saves the day. Traumatic event to any person in the world completely. Yeah. The next episode, he whisks her off to his apartment and they make love like the first time. And I just remember being walking into my boss's office and being like, I love that they're together finally. I think America will too. Do you remember that she got raped an hour ago? <laughs> like, he, and just right, the, the episode. Yeah, it's was an, an hour, hour of the day. Of the day. So in our so, world, uh, she had been totally sexually assaulted. Like at 4 p.m. Yeah, and then 5, 5 p.m. They're having a romantic interlude where <laughs> they confess their oh. love together, and she's walking around in his apartment in that classic white man, like white men's shirt, men's shirt yeah. no, no pants. Post coital. Yeah, and then um, just to cap it off, yes, she gets shot by a sniper through the window. <laughs> so she had a day, like so, they all do. So there's no problem aligning yourself kind of against the politics of that and the sensitivities of that show. Right. I mean, and we, you know, I think it was an equal opportunity offender. I will say, like you kind of can't. You can't really nitpick that show. Because, I mean, you can, but all across the board, you're going to find problems like that. So you kind of have to just, and I don't, it, I tell people, I kind of drank the Kool-Aid after a while. Because after, you just, it's either you buy into it or you com- you are completely offended by everything on that show. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> but if you're part of it and you're in the machine. Uh, what I will say about it is those writers are great because it really i mean the structure of it is such a limitation and they were able to do it for what's now been nine seasons it's kind of 24 episodes each they're they are like the smartest guys in That's hollywood yeah yeah and uh but but there could be better treatment of women <laughs> or just yeah <laughs> you know any person of color the, or, the, yes or, or people of color but i will say and this is almost a cheat and it is completely to say like Yes, the bad guy was a Mexican in episode eight, but by episode twenty-four, it's always a white guy in power who's no. like the big bad guy at so, the end. So it's sort of all hashtag came progress. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And so, did you leave that show though? No, after I just moment? wrote it out until the end. Uh-huh. Um, Do you feel like you could have said more or spoken up about more or no? I think that's a hard you, position your... to be. I was a writer's assistant essentially, um, so, so I definitely made points and like the. I talk a lot about this now that I've sort of crossed over to the other side. Um, but the idea of biding your time is a little bit of a thing, I think, as a as an assistant one uh, in a writing department because you're not paid to voice your opinion, really. Yeah, yeah. And then, two as a woman, um, as the minority in the room. And, the, you know, there is a definite hierarchy within the writer's department in every room. So uh, there's a little bit of, um, I, I don't know, the not very nice way of it is put up and shut up. And then, and then once you get, once you make your, once you make your way up, then you start being louder and louder, yeah. which is something I kind of look back on and regret. Um, but also I can't, I can't really do that now because I don't know what would have been different. Right, and it, uh, uh, and I, I'm not coming down on one side or no, another. No, no, no. But I feel um, I would just say that there is a piece to it. 
which uh, maybe had you been more vocal, you would not have been employed and therefore not have been able to move forward to be in a position where you can then have greater influence. So That's sort of the devil's... Yeah. What do you do there? Yeah. That's the argument I always make with myself because um, I grew up, you know, a family of teachers. Everybody's a very politically um, minded and activated and... And I grew, and my heroes were kind of marginalized artists, people like Miranda and, um, <laughs> the you know, difference between experimental Mar- filmmakers. Yeah. Miranda July in 24. You could not be more opposite. Yeah, and which is now it's sort of a, something, uh, to say that I have a calling card is laughable. But, I mean, I think people tend to be surprised that I worked on a show like 24. I, I, it's weird that I... It's a special kind of good girl <laughs> that can, like, uh, exist in all those sort of places. Yeah. And so after that, you, you were able to go on to another thing. Were you eager uh, so, to move on to another television show? Yeah. I mean, that show outside of, I will say, the last two seasons I was there, I was so lucky because um, the president of the United States in the show, because the show is very political, um, was played by... Cherry Jones, uh, multi-Tony award-winning, amazing, amazing Amazing actress and person. And she was so excited there was a woman having any influence on the scripts. Um, So she was just a huge advocate for me. And just being around her was so inspiring. And also the writers on that show, Howard Gordon and Evan Katz and Manny Cotto and Brandon Braga. I mean, you look at any dramas in the last 10 years and those are the guys that are running them. I mean, these are like, big TV writer guys. Yeah. Um, very, very smart. Howard Gordon is probably the smartest person I've ever met. Um, Press and company. <laughs> except for Dale <laughs> and the ghost. Um, yeah, don't piss them off. I got to sleep here tonight. But no, I mean, then one of the writers from that show, um, Chip Johansson, who's also a great writer, took me with him to Dexter. Um, so another sort of machismo. <laughs> yeah, that's about the serial killer yeah. who works for the police department. Yeah. And because he has an intimate knowledge of the the acts he can lead them to the killers yes and i just happened to be so lucky to get on these shows at the end of their runs so we're like the ideas had sort of been regenerated a few times and regurgitated sorry a few times um so you know the year i was on dexter it was like a rape camp (laughs) like i just there's a lot of like gender politics that i sort of had to (laughs) Really hit at the right moment. Oh man! When you get there for that, it, yeah. Uh, but no, I learned a ton. Like I just a ton about uh, stru- structure and TV working on those shows. And um, what do you learn about character by writing those? Because um, at that point, those characters are firmly established. They are uh, cultural icons in some cases. I mean, Jack Bauer, even a Dexter. Um, what is it like to think about writing for them or pushing their arc forward? What do you? Or is it that this is the established thing, kind of like in an improv game? Here's what they're going to do. We can go this far, this way, or the other. It is very much like that. Dexter was interesting. Um, and again, I didn't write for Dexter. I was the uh, like script editor, essentially. I got to write little things. But um, watching those writers and reading ad nauseum like what they wrote, yeah, you very much... It's fine. Dexter had a very distinctive narration. Everything was voiceover, so that was a good aid. I think hard and also made it easier for them to, you know, you when you have somebody giving their point of view, 
only and that's the only thing you hear it's a lot easier to empathize with that character and think he's funny and all that stuff even though he's murdering people left and right um (laughs) but yeah jack bauer it was interesting to see the different giraffes he was i think those characters they can't change too much i mean they kind of and they really get solidified year after year after year um no, it's definitely an interesting, it's different than comedy, um, but it's also similar because you, in comedy, you never really want people to grow. Uh, that's the whole nature of TV and that's writing, different than a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Is season after season, uh, the character sort of has to be the same jerk <laughs> this the things that made him a jerk season one kind of have to be the same things that make him a jerk season eight. it's the same as in life but in movies you have to have that sort of um contrived growth and in tv you don't you have it episode to episode but you always have but to kind of take of the, it back it becomes part of the um architecture of the thing it becomes part of the structure of it to mm-hmm. always have a reliable joey joke mm-hmm. has to come in here to the rachel mm-hmm. um spaz about her workplace mm-hmm. or talking about friends or i don't know why yes. that popped into my head why not just always like characters that don't seem to really yeah progress much outside of their defined characters i mean i think that is the the other interesting piece of that to me is thinking about comedy as a performer as a stand-up or something like that the whole idea is like how do you get to your persona to such a point that people already are with you to 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 take whatever leap it is you you want to so you go to an Amy Schumer show you already know what you're going to get exactly and it's that refinement that people say authenticity getting to the character of it which is a heightened version of yourself some kind of amalgamation of truthfulness and artful performance uh, to 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 have not not a lot of work for the audience to do, yeah. To then be with you, yeah. I think I'm still kind of learning about all of that. I mean, I hope, yeah, I hope to always be, but um, I think that's changing a little. It's interesting to see shows like Parks and Recreation, where it, it's a comedy, or The Office, like writers and creators who are trying to sort of make characters grow through the seasons, even though they're still saying that they. That character is very clearly defined, like uh, Nick Offerman's character, Ron Swanson. He's kind of the always will be that curmudgeon man's man, but from season one to season yeah, his character did change quite a bit, and I think yeah. that's kind of a new thing with writing comedy. Um, Just that slow burn? That slow, yeah, burn, exactly. It's interesting. I don't know. And are those the kind of shows that you enjoy? Yeah, I love parks and recreation. Um, I just watched all of Getting On. Oh, yeah, I haven't seen it. That show is amazing. Um, Yeah, I try to watch. I I watch a lot of stuff. Um, (laughs) You'd have to. You're in it. You have to know what's going on. And so from, uh, uh, from Dexter, what comes next? Oh, so by that point, I was like, I just really want to write comedy. Yeah. Um, I think um, I was working on stuff, my own stuff on the side, starting to take improv classes again. Um, 
with and the goal of doing what? Just to just, bone up the comedy chops yeah. to have that muscle going again? Yeah. yeah, in TV, the world out here, the business, people really separate comedy and drama. Again, I hope that's sort of changing a little more, but um, it's almost impossible if you're an assistant in TV to then jump over and be an assistant in drama. So at that point, I had been a TV assistant in drama. I mean, in <laughs> sorry, I'll say that again. If you're an assistant in drama, it's almost impossible to jump over to comedy. Yes. So... Um, because people just see it different. Even if you're just an assistant, which you're basically, it's like glorified answering the phone and circling things in red. And, um, so I answered this really sketchy ad on this writer's assistant listserv email, um, that was basically a veteran comedy producer, uh, coming out of retirement, uh, seeks new assistant to help with pilot, um, He doesn't have an office, so you'll have to meet at a coffee shop for your interview. You have to fly with him to Chicago, where he'll put you up for two weeks and write this pilot. And so, like, I think as any, as a woman, you just have certain trigger words, like, (laughs) fly anywhere with anybody. No. Um, Coffee shop. No. Living in his parents' garage. Like, who is this guy? Um, But then, and it was all very funny to me that he was so, like, cloaked in mystery like just say he who you are buddy (laughs) I understand it at the same time because he ended up being Bruce Helford who um (laughs) I mean it still is kind of funny but (laughs) he uh ran Roseanne he created Drew Carey family I mean he was on Family Ties he created the George Lopez show he's a huge comedy writer I did literally meet him at Groundswork coffee across the street from Dexter (laughs) Uh, we talked about musicals and he hired me and he I did fly with him to Chicago where he put me up at the Park Hyatt but nothing ever creepy happened um, and we wrote a comedy pilot with these five great Northwestern guys called Boyfriend which I still wish had gone it was a com- like a musical comedy but it didn't go and then I went back to the dramas back to Howard Gordon's camp which I was so lucky to be in Howard I mean amazing again um, the show Awake on NBC written by Kyle Killen who's one of the greater writers, I think, of our generation. Which was what? The, the, uh, it was a show. It was so funny because it wasn't funny. It was a show called Awake, and it was about an, a cop yeah. whose son, who gets in a terrible car accident in the first two minutes of the show with his wife and his son. Yeah. And he wakes up in two realities, and in one reality oh, the yes. wife is dead, yes, and in the other recall. reality his son is dead. And after the pilot... And the whole show is him living in these two realities, dealing with the grief and the death of one or the other. Yeah. And NBC was like, "It just, we just really don't want it to be sad <laughs> <laughs> or depressing for anybody. So can we just like make it happy every episode?" And the writers were just like, "What? <laughs> yeah, that's, um, that's not what we uh, signed up for." Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's fine after these two deaths that he's constantly dealing with. Um, so anyway, I'm working there. My best friend calls me and is like, did you read Deadline? And I was like, no, um, because I should read that a lot more than I do. Um, it's a source for Hollywood information it's a, and that the, kind of thing. Yes, the yeah. Hollywood uh, breaking news. Um, but Bruce Helford had signed on to do a 100-episode order of a new sitcom starring Charlie Sheen. So... I. Uh, not again a guy driven show <laughs> where gender politics are very suspect and um i just sort of started crying and also 
like laughing simultaneously, <laughs> like which has been a lot of my existence in Hollywood. Because um, I knew, because he'd already promised me that at the next thing he would staff me. And so then it's this thing. Yeah, it's this thing. Anger management. Anger management. And so you worked on that for how many episodes? A hundred. A hundred. You did the full hundred. Mm-hmm. Is it still going? No. We did the full hundred, and then we all died and came back to life. <laughs> um, and what was your role in that? I started off as the writer's assistant. Yeah. For the first ten, it's a thing called a 1090, which I don't know if they'll ever do again, which instead of picking up a pilot, they have you do ten episodes. And then if those are received well, they pick up 90 more. So for the first 10, which we wrote in about a month and shot just as quickly, I was the writer's assistant. I got to write a freelance. This is all very technical. But then because of that, I got promoted. And then that was my, that was it, three. And now I'm on, that's, but it's funny. I think this is a female thing. It's hard for me to talk about being a Hollywood writer without always telling everybody, oh, I'm an assistant. I was an assistant for eight years. You know, they're always like apologetic. Because I do still feel it's hard to kick that out of you. But you were writing on that show. Yes. Yeah. And full episodes. Yeah. No, we were, I mean, that was... A hundred episodes. Yeah, I got paid to go to comedy college, basically. Um, It was amazing. So within that... Which I will confess I've never watched an episode Thank of Anger Management. You don't have to. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know a single thing about it. It's a cultural than, shifter, but other you. Than <laughs> Sheen was involved. He left the two and a half men, and he was in drinking a whirlwind. Some tiger blood or something. Yes. And then he gets this incredible deal to do all these shows. He put it together. I mean, he knows what he's doing. Apparently, yeah. whatever you may think of the guy, he knew he knew how to structure this deal, and he did. <laughs> And, and and but uh, so what's that like? What, what's the what's what's the end? The takeaway from that, being a strong, independent female voice writing for whatever the show was, which I have to imagine was not uh, so friendly towards. Yeah, I mean the joke was, which I made you know a lot of, which I definitely ran into the ground. Was like the end of every act one was Charlie sleeps with a new twenty five year old. I mean that's. That's what the show was. That's what it was. Mm-hmm. He was essentially the same character from uh, Two and a Half Men. I think they started the... not wanting him to be. But that really plays to his strengths. Yeah, it's hard. I never really watched Two and a Half Men, so I don't really know what his character was on that and how but, it differentiated. But, but Two and a Half Men had a decent structure to it. Yeah, it's a, it's one of the most popular. This, this is what I mean. Ever. I had to. Uh, yeah. I didn't. I've watched enough of it I to know. I think the problem. God, I'm gonna get. Struggle for this, but um, we'll be, yeah, know, we'll say as much as you're comfortable with because I don't want to have to go back in here and edit anything. <laughs> it's an interesting dilemma because in Two and a Half Men, as much as you'd like to think Charlie was the main character, he's actually the supporting actor. Right. He's the ro- uh, he's the rakish, um, you know, womanizing brother to the to the main character who has all this sort of. Uh, Crises of the soul constantly yes, the and the neurotic. Life. But yeah, yeah, yes. Whereas in our show, we took that supporting character and made him center stage. So that's an interesting problem as writers right. because he has essentially no faults. He's living a happy life where he's sleeping with whoever he wants and is relatively wealthy. And it was it was just an so we we made the characters around him as crazy as possible. 
Um, but that's already, you're like starting at a level 12 at, of crazy and then adding a certain level of yeah, crazy from there. Well, he was a therapist, so that's sort of the broad strokes his of all. His character was yes, a therapist? Yes, but all of his... All of his patients or his family was sort of the... So, like, Newhart was the model. Exactly. If it, except Newhart is, you know, very inside, <laughs> like, always leaning in. Charlie is already very gregarious. And, I see. But, it, I mean, great, so many great writers on that show. Like, again, I got to work with Sam Simon. He created The Simpsons. Amazing guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, Rob Eulin is one of my favorite people. He's worked on... He and Dave Kaplan... Were hilarious because their first show together was the dinosaurs, <laughs> and um, <laughs> the family, the puppets. Yes, the Jim yeah. Henson dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, not, not the mama. Not the mama, which Rob Eulen says is his line. Um, I'm sure it is. Um, but you know, Eric Weinberg worked on Scrubs. Every show that you know, yeah. One of the guys I worked with had been a huge part of, so it was kind of amazing. So then that uh, concludes happily, and you move on to doing this other thing now, which uh, you, you're part of uh, the initiative from NBC. Yeah. So NBC has a new digital platform. Um, kind of like a, their own Hulu um, or Netflix, and it's called CISO, and they've bought so many great um, projects from kind of amazing comedy people. It's all They're comedy. They're working with UCB. They're working with uh, certain NBC properties already. Yeah, they've acquired all of uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. It's going to have a lot of the things that people have like wanted to see on the Internet that uh, you can't. I'm like doing an advertisement for them, but... <laughs> They, yeah, so I'm lucky enough to be so on So how do you move from Charlie Sheen to working in, this, in the current position? Uh, you, and I'm sorry if I keep asking the same question, but I'm fascinated by the journey, and even though we've known each other for 10 years, I don't really know a darn yeah. thing about you. So I mean, you sit on your butt for a little while, and you write some samples, and you start to remember why <laughs> you're in a dark place, um, <laughs> Dale. <laughs> You come out of the Charlie Sheen cape because literally. Well, I thought you were telling me I was in a dark. No, no, I'm in a dark place. All the rooms I've worked with, other than Dexter, for the oh no, okay. People think Hollywood's very glamorous, but the majority of my offices have been windowless. Like, Mm -hmm. so when I say coming out of a dark place, I literally mean like you live in these like as a young person without a home life. (laughs) It sounds so sad, but it's kind of true. Like, I'm not married. I don't have kids. You give over so much of your time to this, and um, like the joke is sort of now like, oh, what did you like? What were your twenties? And I'm always like, <laughs> I don't know, like in an office by myself reading a script at one in the morning. Um, <laughs> pretty great. Pretty great. Um, so we were all exhausted after anger management. I think in every way, um, I was like twenty pounds bigger (laughs) there's just a lot of like eating to cope like all around and um so I went you know I watched every single Richard Curtis movie like there was a lot of like what's a Richard Curtis he's famous for like four weddings and a funeral and um a lot of British romantic comedies that I loved when I was like 22 yeah Yeah, sort of remembering why I wanted to do this in the first place and then matching that girl that young uh, bright-eyed person with the person I was coming out of anger management, which isn't to say that I was uh, it's okay. a <laughs> skeleton of my former self, but, you know, you. it sounds kind of cheesy, but the idea of holding on to your voice as a writer and what that is is something that 
can get shaken around a bit when you've worked in so sure. many different and yeah. and your job as a TV writer is to really become the voice of whatever the person is who's running the show or whatever that show is. So you lose yourself a little bit. Um so yeah, so then I got out of anger management. Uh we all survived and um yeah, just a lot of walking around and like looking at flowers and things like that. <laughs> but no, then I was lucky enough to get an interview for this amazing show um, that's ran by uh, Kulap Vilaisak, uh, who does the comedy Bang Bang, who charted podcast Earwolf. Yeah. And it's about million-dollar listings as a show on Bravo, and this is sort of a fictionalized uh, satire of that show. Uh, right now it's called Bajillion Dollar Properties, and it's been great. They're just... They all make fun of me because, well, for a lot of reasons, because I'm, I'm very easily uh, teased. But I'm just, it's a small staff, only five. Three of us have been, because we, we kind of change around a little bit, but three Asian Americans, four women, you know, gay people, <laughs> um, African and black people, you know, it's, and I'm always just like, guys, we're so gorgeous and diverse. And they're just always like, what? <laughs> like, where have you been? And I'm like, on an island on a planet of men. Um, so it must be terribly exciting. Who wrote for Veronica Mars. Yeah, yeah. Um, it is. I pinch myself really every day. And so when does this uh, show get going? We're finishing up writing it right now, and it's going to be on the World Wide Web, I guess, on in January. In January, through exclusively through CISO, S-E-E-S-O. Mm-hmm. Yes, CISO. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's three ninety nine a month or well, something Well, it's very like reasonable that. Yeah. Uh, for this thing. And do you think you'll do some more uh, projects with them, or this, you can see how this one goes and then... Gosh, I hope so. I mean, I really admire Scott Ackerman and Comedy Bang Bang, mm-hmm. um, who are producing this so much, and also Tom Lennon and Ben Garant are executive producers, and they did Reno 911, which is a huge influence on our show. You could do a lot worse than that, huh? Yeah, I mean, and just, they come into the room and pitch, and they, they're such amazing improvisers, and they just are so used to working with each other that they'll just go on these rants for half an hour. Not rants, like structured, beautiful games of improvisation. Right. But we're <laughs> uh, based on characters that we kind of present them with that might be in the show, and it's, yeah, it's kind of amazing. It must be something to just watch that unfold. Yeah. And you're developing these characters for that program. Yeah, it's yeah. been really fun. It's been, you know, I've been so, so lucky. Um, I really, I've never, I, rem- I was in an Uber last year, and the guy driving me around talk- was talking to me about the writer's strike and just how after the writer's strike he, he had been a an editor before it, and then after it really struggled to get back in and to work. And I had never realized until that conversation how lucky I have been to really continually work in Hollywood. I think it's really, a, it sounds nerdy, but it's a gift, really. I mean, there's a lot more people not working. Yeah. Yeah. I've never had th- that problem. That's great. Yeah. Well, it also speaks to your talent. Yeah. And again, I think it speaks to um, a lot of, you know, people talk about so much of hiring writers is talent and working hard but is also just as a person 
you can hang out in your room with for 12 hours. And it's both a compliment and I think a sort of, not an insult, but it's the measured idea of like, <laughs> for me, I always, I probably, I read too much into everything. I'm neurotic, but I am. Um, it's the idea of like you're you're sort of uh, not a pushover, but easily you can just be quiet and agreeable <laughs> in a room. <laughs> and it's something that I uh, I think I it's a it's a skill that you develop in this industry. Yeah, one of the skills. Well, uh, we're almost out of time, but the other thing that you do is storytelling around town, and you run the radio picture show mm-hmm. uh, program that's been going on. You're also heavily involved in the Echo Park Film Center, mm-hmm. um, all great enterprises, um, and we'll put some links up there on the, on the site. But mm-hmm. um, you, you have some other projects that you're going to be... Uh, would you like to develop your own thing? Yeah, always. I mean, going back to talking about, um, you know, coming-of-age girl stories, I mean... That's sort of, I love that stuff. And yeah. if I can kind of bridge bridge that with comedy. The, I don't know if there's been enough funny, um, you know, high school girl shows. But um, so that's something I'm always looking to make. And then, yeah, I'm always like you, Dale, or yeah. <laughs> um, the storytelling thing. Yeah, I run it with Lauren Cook and Eric Fink and Marion Hodges. And that's been really amazing. It's a lot like The Moth. Um, we do that the second Wednesday of every month and it's a pretty good show here in LA. A lot of people come and we've had some great performers and yeah, so I'm always doing that. And yeah, again, Echo Park Film Center has sort of been my opposite spectrum thing from working on shows like 24. Uh, it's a very small micro cinema and film school that caters towards youth and seniors in Echo Park and just a great community resource. You're putting together a good life for yourself, Shauna. Yeah, and I have the dog. And, and Rose has been terrific during this whole program. Yeah, very quiet. I hope she's still here. <laughs> she might have died. <laughs> she crossed well, over. As long as she doesn't haunt me tonight. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, just quickly, uh, a favorite um, uh, uh, comedic persona or character that had an influence on you? Oh, um... Comedic persona or character. Or a comedian or anybody. Yeah, well, I'll say Emma Thompson because I just watched a movie with her last night. I think she's amazing. She's She started off in a comedy troupe in England. And still then funny. She's still so hilarious. funny. Any, one of my favorite weird pastimes is to watch any award show, like Kennedy Center Honors is my weird online obsession and uh, or AFI tributes yeah. she always gives the best always speeches the best. yeah she's hilarious just very witty and gracious it's I like something that. to aspire to mm-hmm. that's great well Shauna thank you so much thank you it's been terrifically this exciting this has been fun my first podcast your first one mm-hmm. pretty good folks <laughs> pretty good thanks a lot Oh, my goodness. Thank you to Shauna for a great discussion. Let's have more women in the writers' rooms. Let's have more great characters who are women. Let's stay in fewer haunted places. Let's stop building hotels over old cemeteries. I'm encouraged. I'm excited. And I'm ready to get into costume and ask older people for sweets. Till next time, I'll be making memorial torches out of empty whiskey bottles and throwing them into the Gowanus to see if they float. If they do, I'll know that they're possessed by the spirits of witches long gone and probably my relatives. Now let's get back to that great music that we all enjoy. 
Dale Radio is written and performed by James Bewley, musical director Steve O'Reilly. Season theme composed and performed by Shockwave. Podcast icon for season eight designed by Jenny Fine. Listen to Dale on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher Radio. And follow the program on Twitter at Dale Radio or on Instagram at Dale Seaver. If you'd like Dale to come to your local VFW or Elks Lodge, simply drop us a line at Dale Radio at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. You're the best.